Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1 through chapter 8, verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been far off and deep, very deep, who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God man made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. This is the word of the Lord.
Well, today, Ecclesiastes 7 has a lot to teach us about the themes of wisdom and folly. There's a lot of foolishness in the world. Have you noticed that? And human folly has terrible destructive power. Human foolishness can destroy lives, it can destroy families, it can destroy nations. And the flip side of that is that the wisdom of God is hard to find in the world. But where you find people who walk in the wisdom of God, it has power to shine a bright light into the darkness of the world. Now, before we dive into some of the details of the particulars of this text, I want to tell you a story uh, to help set the stage for why this is important. It's a story some of you may be familiar with and others not. It's of one of my heroes. Her name was Corey Ten Boom. Corey Ten Boom was a woman of profound wisdom, and her wisdom was a light shining in a very dark time in human history. Now, she grew up in a family that was wise from generations of devout Christians who loved Jesus, who loved the Bible. And her family had taught her and modeled for her that if you respect God, if you love God, then that's going to mean that you respect all people. You honor the sacred dignity of every human being. They showed her that truth from the scriptures, but they also showed it with their lives because her family was very generous to the poor. Her family was a family of great hospitality and In Europe, in the early 20th century, as there was uh, mounting tensions between Jewish and Christian communities, they saw from the beginning that that was wrong. That as followers of Christ, we're to be peacemakers who honor all human dignity and who in particular work for better relationships between Jews and Christians. Now, Corey embraced that faith. And as a young woman, she had been disappointed in love. She thought she was going to get married and it didn't work out, but... Um, Through the midst of life difficulties, she just kept going and going deeper in her relationship with Jesus. She started a career. She actually became the first woman in the Netherlands to be licensed as a watchmaker. She was very skillful. She started a discipleship group for youth, and she was uh, doing charitable work for poor young women in her neighborhood. And yet the real test of her faith was going to come in the 1940s as an evil Nazi ideology began to sweep across Europe. Now, in the year 2020, we have talked a lot about the fact that sometimes in life you're making plans and you're building things and you're going in a certain direction and circumstances outside of your control will just knock your plans down. Anybody experienced that this year? We've had a global pandemic. We've had an economic recession. We've had inflamed racial tensions and political chaos. Sometimes it's good to read a little history and remember we're not the first generation to face turmoil on the earth. And what we've experienced was nothing compared to what was sweeping across Europe. The Nazi ideology was a hate-filled, hate-driven ideology that would eventually cost millions of lives. And as it began to come to the Netherlands, many people in the community of the Ten Booms embraced this ideology, which, among other things, blamed the Jews for so many problems in Europe and dehumanized Jewish people. And said that we should segregate Jews from the rest of society and ultimately led to the mass murder of millions of Jews. But the Ten Boom family saw this was wrong. And as followers of Christ, they could not compromise with that kind of evil. So in Corey's room, they built a hidden room. As a matter of fact, Corey Ten Boom would later write a book called The Hiding Place 
that told the story of her family. And there's this little room about the size of a closet with a secret trap door in which they could hide people. And they began joining the Dutch resistance to oppose the Nazis. They were risking their own lives, but people would come stay with them. And if the Gestapo, the, the Nazi secret police would come search the house, they would put these Jews that they were trying to save in the hiding place in Corey's room. Corey began organizing something that was similar to the Underground Railroad in America. And over the course of years, Corey's family was involved in saving at least 800 Jewish lives. But eventually, they were turned in by a fellow Dutch citizen. And they were arrested. Corey's father died from inhumane treatment within about 10 days of being arrested. Corey and her sister ended up in a concentration camp where they were tormented and faced credible, incredible evil and incredible suffering. Corey's sister died in that concentration camp. And Corey herself went through deep crises of faith. Where are you, God? But by the grace of God, her faith did not crumble. She trusted Christ. She kept praying. Her heart Almost gave in to bitterness, but by the grace of God, it didn't give in to bitterness. So when Corey was eventually set free, she started these rehabilitation centers to help bring healing to people who survived those concentration camps. They needed love. They needed physical care. They needed psychological care to heal from the trauma that they had experienced. But what, what made her work so remarkable was that she also... And these rehabilitation centers wanted to take care of the oppressors who had participated with the Nazis. Because she knew that oppression and injustice does great damage to the human psyche, not only of the oppressed, but especially of the oppressors. Famously, she had a chance to confront one of the guards who had tormented her and her sister. And it was a a great spiritual trial for her because she wanted vengeance to come out. But she confronted and offered forgiveness to this man. Eventually, the moral witness of her life became so great that she became internationally known as a champion of human rights, of peace, of justice and of reconciliation. Now, we're telling that story right now because Corey Ten Boom's story illustrates the importance of what Ecclesiastes 7 is all about. Hear this, friends. None of us is going to escape the brokenness of the world. None of us is going to escape the brokenness of the world. There is great evil and darkness in the world. And that evil and darkness causes great pain. For some of us, the the pain causes us to be embittered. But for the disciple of Jesus, by the grace of God, that pain can become the furnace in which spiritual wisdom is forged. And if we become that kind of people in whom the wisdom of Christ dwells, That wisdom of Christ can be a bright light, which can shine out into the world and bring great hope and healing. Now, in Ecclesiastes 7, there's a lot of truth about how to become wise people in a world marked by folly and darkness. We don't have time to talk about everything, but within the next few minutes, we're going to talk about several of the key truths here. Wouldn't you like to become a community filled with people who have that kind of spiritual wisdom that marked the life of Corey Ten Boom? Then let's listen up to what Ecclesiastes has to say to us. The first thing that we're going to see in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 is the reality that wisdom is a powerful force for good. Wisdom is a powerful force for good. We see that in a few places in our text. Look with me at Ecclesiastes 
It says, wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Now, what this is saying is that wisdom is stronger than the strength of ten rulers. Now, I know that many of you have some ambition about doing great things in our city or great things in the world. And what I would say, what this text is helping to understand is that if you have something you want to accomplish in life, instead of spending your time trying to get the mayor or a senator or a billionaire to get on your team, then just pursue wisdom and you'll have more strength than 10 of the most powerful men or women you could find in your community. Wisdom is a powerful force for good. Well, look with me at Ecclesiastes 7, verses 11 and 12. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Now, this text is literally the reality that, that money can protect us from some things. Money can Maybe some of you experience money can get you out of debt. Amen. Money can get us a place to live. Money can help you pay for school. But if you want real protection, what this text is telling us is don't get money, get wisdom. Wisdom can keep you from wrecking your financial life. Wisdom can teach you how to maintain healthy relationships. Wisdom can teach you how to do your work with excellence. Wisdom can teach you how to live a healthy and a fruitful life. Those are all things that money can't do. Now, this is emphasized in the first half of the first verse that's printed there in your bulletin. It says, a good name is better than precious ointment. What this is saying is that the reputation that wisdom can give you is worth far more than all the precious things that money can buy. A good name is far better than just good ointment. Look at Ecclesiastes 8.1. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine. And the hardness of his face is changed. And when the Bible talks about someone's face shining, it's often talking about the delight or the joy that they have in a thing. So if I delight in you, then my face shines towards you. If God delights in us, his face shines toward us. And what the verse is saying is that wisdom has the, has the ability has the power to bring you great delight and great joy. Wisdom will make your face shine. Folly will make your face hard. If you seek foolishness, keep running after foolishness, you'll make some really poor decisions and you'll end up bitter. But wisdom has the capacity, has the power to free us for true joy. So wisdom, we've been saying is wisdom is a powerful force for good. So first truth from the chapter about wisdom, wisdom's a powerful force for good. But we need to balance that with the second truth that the chapter also emphasizes, which is that all human wisdom is very limited. Wisdom is good. Wisdom is a gift from God. You should seek God's wisdom. It'll make a big difference in your life and in the life of other people around you. If you live a foolish life, you'll hurt yourself and others. If you live a wise life. It'll bring joy and you'll bless others. Wisdom is good. You got that point? Everybody say wisdom is good. Wisdom is good. But human wisdom is very limited. And I don't I'm not contrasting right now some sort of sinful human wisdom with divine wisdom. I'm saying if you as a human being get the wisdom of God, it's still in you and it's going to be limited. And that's for a couple reasons. First, we're not God. 
which means our wisdom and our power are very finite. God understands everything. We could spend our whole life coming to understand a little bit. And even when we figure out what's important and what we ought to do, sometimes we just still lack the power to get it done. Only God has infinite wisdom and power. But second of all, human beings are so corrupted by sin that even very wise people often can be lured into folly in a way that has power to do great harm. Let me show you those truths in the text. First, look at verses 23 and 24. The sage says, all this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which have been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? What he's saying is I devoted my whole life to become wise and wisdom was still far from me. I tried to understand the meaning of human history and it was deep. I couldn't get to the bottom of it. In other words, no human being has everything figured out. The smartest people in the world have a million questions that they can't answer. And part of what it means to be wise is to recognize that limitation and what it implies. Or look at verses 13 through 14. It says, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that Man may not find out anything that will be after him. What it's trying to say here is our power is very limited. We can't fix the world. Only Jesus can fix the world. Only Jesus can heal the wounds of the world. So in life, we're going to go through some good times and we're going to go through some really hard times. And we're powerless to change that. And what it's saying is in wisdom would lead you to recognize that when you go through the good times, give thanks to God. And when you go through the hard times, Consider your need for God. Learn humility. Consider your own limitations. Or look at the next verse, verse 15. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life and his evil doing. What he's saying here is in this broken world, it's much better to live wisely than to live foolishly. But there's so much sin in the world and the power of even the wisest people is so limited that often wise people live obscure lives, accomplish a little bit and then die. Whereas foolish, wicked people live long lives, become very famous, very influential. There's a limit to what human wisdom can accomplish. All of that has been talking about human limitations. But the biggest problem isn't really human limitations. It's human sin. And that's what verse 20 is about. Look at that verse. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Now, let's talk about what the text is not saying. It's not saying that there are no righteous people who do good. Lots of righteous people live who do good. Lots of you in this room trust God and do a lot of good. Corey Ten Boom was a righteous woman who did a lot of good. But what it's saying is you will not find on earth a righteous person who does good and never sins. That's the key. Even the best people and the wisest people have to battle the presence of evil, not just out there in the world, but in here in our own hearts. As a matter of fact, if you take me up on my repeated invitation to go read more about the life of Corrie ten Boom and read The Hiding Place or, or some of her other books, you'll find that she part of what made her so wise is that she was aware of her own sin. 
And she was constantly asking God for grace and for help so that her sin didn't take her over, which it still could have done at any moment. Verse 29 returns to the same theme when it says, see this alone, I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. God created a good world and the best part of God's creation is human beings made in the image of God. And yet humans have chosen evil and brought so much pain and brokenness into the world. We get an example of this in verse seven. Verse seven says, surely oppression drives the wise into madness. And a bribe corrupts the heart. This is saying even really wise people are capable of falling into temptation and becoming oppressors. It's kind of like what 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says. Paul says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. If you ever think you're above temptation, that's the moment when you're very likely to fall into temptation. Wise people understand their moral vulnerability They're aware of the seductive power of evil and they stay vigilant to fight against it. So what should we learn from all this? One option would be despair. That's not what we want to do. Don't fall into despair. Don't give up on life. And don't think what the sage is saying is that it's not worth it to pursue wisdom. Everybody say wisdom is good. Wisdom is good. But it is saying that. Human wisdom is not going to set the world right. We need Jesus for that. That's right. We need to set our hope in Christ, not in ourselves. And it's also helping us to recognize one of the marks of true wisdom is recognizing our own limitations and our own constant need for grace. We've said it a lot lately, but let's say it again. The battle line between good and evil is not between us, our tribe, our group and the other people. The battle line between good and evil runs through all of our hearts. The wise come to recognize that and to learn to live day by day in humble dependence upon the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We've been talking about both the power of wisdom and the limitations of wisdom. And now we want to step back and consider what Ecclesiastes has been teaching us about wisdom thus far in the book. So first we have seen that Wisdom is better than folly. Would you guys say amen to that? Amen. We've already seen that today. And a life directed by wisdom is better than a life directed by foolishness. But Ecclesiastes has also taught us something that John Marsh just alluded to a little bit ago, that there's one kind of wisdom that is better than another kind of wisdom. We've learned in Ecclesiastes that there is a worldly wisdom. Everyone say worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom. Now, worldly wisdom sees me, whoever me is, me at the center of Life, if I'm center of my life, it will lead me to do some things that are beneficial to me, even if they are cruel and ugly toward you. Now, worldly wisdom might accomplish your goals, but it will demean and step on people along the way. We've seen people that that operate by worldly wisdom, and it's not good for the world. But that's contrasted with another kind of wisdom, which is godly wisdom. Everyone say godly wisdom. Godly wisdom. Now, godly wisdom comes from God, is motivated by God, is centered on God, is starts with a fear of God. And godly wisdom is a wisdom that leads us to treat other people like God treats other people. It leads us to recognize the inherent dignity in people and to offer them grace and mercy like God gives to us. Godly wisdom is what leads 
to individual lives and families and schools and workplaces that are places of righteousness and peace and joy. So godly wisdom is better than worldly wisdom. So we want to pursue godly wisdom. Amen. Amen. But like John Mark was just saying, we as human beings are limited in how godly our wisdom can be. So the, the primary mark of a life that's characterized by godly wisdom is the recognition of our human limitation and deeper our human sin. Now, Jesus says this in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter five, when in Matthew five, verse three, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Disciples of Jesus recognize that they are impoverished of spirit. They are empty and they need God to fill them. Disciples of Jesus turn from this brazen arrogance that says, I'm the wise one. I've got wisdom figured out. Look to me for wisdom. And they turn to God in humble desperation for true wisdom. And the reality is, friends, that Jesus died and rose again. So that sinners who have been tasting their own version of wisdom can be forgiven and rescued from that useless search and be freed for the the true wisdom of God. So we're going to talk a little bit more now about what godly wisdom looks like here in Ecclesiastes. So this chapter has some really important things to say about how to become the kind of people who walk in godly wisdom as opposed to either the destructive way of life called folly or the destructive way of life Chauncey was just talking about as worldly wisdom. And the, the first thing to say is that the fear of the Lord is the root of godly wisdom, which can save us from those two destructive extremes. Now, this is taught in verses 15 through 18, which are confusing. So let's read those confusing verses together and then try and figure out what they're talking about. Look with me at verse 15. Listen to what the sage says. It says, in my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that with not, not withhold your hand, For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Now, this passage is designed to make you think hard. You ready to think hard? Yes, sir. Chauncey is ready. I'm ready. Ready or not. Here we go, everybody. (laughs) The, The passage on the face of it sounds like it's saying this. Hey, be a little wise and a little foolish. Be a little righteous and a little wicked. Doesn't that sound like what it's saying? I mean, look at verse 16 again. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. You see that? Now, that should pause. That should cause you to pause. Sounds like it's saying you should balance godliness and sin. Does that sound like anything the rest of the Bible says? (laughs) No, it doesn't. So that surface reading is problematic for several reasons. First of all, the rest of the Bible is quite clear That we're supposed to hunger and thirst for righteousness and to pursue as much godly wisdom as we can get while completely rejecting evil and folly. But second, even the rest of Ecclesiastes warns us that wickedness always brings destructive consequences and that foolishness will destroy your life. Third, the passage ends by commending to us the fear of the Lord. Everybody say fear God. Fear God. And 
the Bible makes it clear that the fear of the Lord doesn't ever lead you out of wisdom and righteousness. It leads you deeper and deeper into wisdom and righteousness. So what's going on here? I think the best answer is that the text is using irony to criticize a kind of fake wisdom and a fake righteousness that often take over people's lives. We could call it man-made wisdom or man-made righteousness. We could call it self-made religion. Now, in the first draft of this sermon, I had, at this point, a whole bunch of biblical examples. But Chauncey helped me see that we didn't have time for all of that. Thank God for Chauncey Shiloh. (laughs) So here's just two. And if you're not convinced, just know there was loads more that we could have talked about. In the time of Jesus, the Pharisees were idealized by many people in their society as the embodiment of the ideal of wisdom and righteousness. Everybody, if you ask any devout Jew, who's the most wise? Who's the most righteous people you know? They'd point to a Pharisee, Nicodemus or Saul of Tarsus, somebody like that. And yet when Jesus meets the Pharisees, every time he confronts them and he calls them to repentance. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he tells his disciples, no way you're getting into the kingdom of God unless your righteousness surpasses their righteousness. Right. Or we could think for a second about Paul's letter to the Colossians. Paul's writing to a church that has been uh, hindered by the spread of a false teaching, which looked wise on the surface. But Paul is going to reject it and call it man-made religion. And the teaching was all about being super self-disciplined being super rigorous, abstaining from anything that could morally corrupt you. Don't eat this food. Don't touch that. Don't watch that. Don't listen to that. The, the teachers were also very mystical. They were always telling stories about their dreams and their visions and uh, got really interested in angels and demons and the spirit world. And Paul just rebukes it. He says, that's all foolishness. It's masquerading as wisdom, but it's fake wisdom, fake righteousness. Let me read you what Paul says about it at the end of Colossians 2, starting in verse 20 says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom. You hear that? They look wise. And then he says, in promoting self-made religion, self-righteousness, and asceticism and severity to the body, But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So Paul is saying there is a kind of wisdom, a kind of righteousness, which is made up by human beings, which is really fake wisdom. It's fake righteousness. It's humans trying to save ourselves, but it's powerless for the real work of fighting against evil. If you want to really fight against evil, all you need to do is go back to Jesus and his word. So what the passage is telling us to do is to avoid Two extremes avoid a life of foolish self-indulgence where you plunge into sin. That'll destroy your life. But also it's saying avoid every extreme of self-righteous, self-exalting religion and morality, which says we through our discipline and our moral seriousness are going to save ourselves. What's going to lead you out of it? Well, the text tells you, what does it say? Fear God, fear God. You see, people who fear the Lord don't try to make up a way to save themselves. They just listen to what God said. They listen to God's word. They trust God's promises. They obey God's command. That's what the fear of the world looks like. 
And if you fear the Lord, then God's word will lead you into a path of wisdom that will give you joy. It'll make your face shine and it'll give you real moral strength. Fake religion can't actually give you moral strength to become a better person. But trusting in the gospel of Christ, trusting God's promises, obeying God's command can give you a strength which is greater than the strength of ten rulers to actually do good in the world. That's right. Man, that's good. Everyone say fear God. Fear God. That's where godly wisdom is rooted. Now, the second point I want to make about godly wisdom and how to walk in it is something that I think is um, heavy for us uh, and many of us today. And that is this reality that Godly wisdom is learned in the school of suffering. And to use the same terminology we used earlier, godly wisdom is learned in the furnace of suffering. Now look with me at verses 1 through 6 of chapter 7 to see this. A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Now in this section, we see that a lot of what we don't like is more helpful than the stuff that we do like. First place we can see that is in verse 5. Look again, it says, It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise man than to hear the song of, of fools. We'd much rather hear someone tell us that we are the best person they know, and that we did a great job at whatever we did. We'd rather hear that than to hear that we weren't right and that we're actually a little bit prideful. Wouldn't you rather hear you're a great person than hear you're a little bit prideful? I know I would, but what this is saying is that the rebuke of the wise person will actually teach us more than the affirmation of a fool. So what we don't like can actually be more helpful than what we like. Now, in the rest of the passage, we see this reality that that suffering and grief can teach us more than fun can teach us. Now, the sage is not saying we shouldn't have fun. The sage is not saying we should avoid laughter at all costs. The sage is not saying that we should avoid celebrating births or birthdays or marriages or graduations. The sage is not saying there's not a place for feasting. In fact, four chapters ago, he told us there's a time for everything. However... The sage is teaching us something more about wisdom. And I want us to see this. Grief can teach us a few things. And one thing it can do for us is teach us what is important. Death has a way of helping us see what is really important in life. This falls pretty close to home. I mentioned a few weeks ago that my mom passed away a few years ago in 2001. On October 15th, October 15th was this past Thursday. And on Thursday, my sister posted on Facebook a little memorial to my mom. Some of you might have seen it. And she asked folks to share comments about either encouragements for us or stories that we may not have heard about my mom. And you know that in none of those stories did anyone ever mention how many degrees she had. 
Nobody mentioned how much money she seemed to have in the bank when she passed. Nobody mentioned the brand of clothes that she wore on a daily basis. You know what they talked about? They talked about how much she loved the Lord, how much she loved her family, and how kind she was. That's what they talked about. That's what was remembered. Grief, mourning, spending time in the house of mourning can help us see what is really important, which will ultimately make our heart glad. Not only can grief teach us what is important, it can teach us what is, what is enduring. Grief is the acknowledgement of the end of a thing. But fam, it can be difficult to acknowledge when something is over. God has put eternity in our hearts. So it can be difficult to grasp that something has ended. And over the last few months, two situations are resonating in my mind when I think about this reality of things that have ended. The first thing is COVID. I mean, when COVID hit, some things changed forever. We, we, we realize that something's changed forever. Some aspects of our reality will never be the same as they were before. I mean, on the most probably difficult level, people died. People have passed away. Folks that have been our loved ones to us have, have, are no longer with us. But not only that, but institutions have died. Organizations have died. Businesses have died. What COVID has shown us is that, that things end. And that needs to be grieved. We need to mourn for those things. We must acknowledge that some things have ended. And that acknowledgement helps us to see what really is lasting, what really is eternal, what is worth giving our lives to. So COVID has taught us what is really enduring. But not only that, I was talking with my aunt last week. My aunt lives in Lake Charles, Louisiana. And Lake Charles has just had two catastrophic hurricanes come through. And my aunt told me on the phone, she said, I don't think the city is ever going to be the same. It's never going to be the same. I mean, we had debris stacked up that now is all over the place in the city. It's never going to be the same. And this is something to grieve. Grief helps us to see that life is, is fragile. Careers are fragile. Wealth is fragile. Grief helps us see what really is enduring and what really isn't. But not only does grief teach us what is important and what is enduring, grief teaches us about hope. When we lose a job, when we lose our health, even when we lose someone that we love, it reveals something about where we put our hope. And I tell you, life isn't worth putting your hope in something that's not going to last, fam. I was thinking about this recently when I was looking at the book of Job. A lot of you know the story of, of Job. The book starts off by saying that Job was a righteous man, and it begins to articulate how wealthy this man was. I mean, this dude had camels upon camels upon camels and kids upon kids upon kids. He was the wealthy man. And then some of you know the story in Job chapter 1. What happens is everything is taken from him. Everything is taken from him to the most loved people in his life. What we see in this, in this book of Job is we see where Job had his hope put from the beginning. If you look in Job chapter 1, verse 20, 20, 20 through 22, we hear this. After Job loses everything, it says this. It says, then, then Job arose and tore his robe, he grieved, and shaved his head 
And he fell on the ground and he worshiped. And he said this, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, I don't know about you. I only have two kids. But to lose all of them? And he can say, God be blessed. This man had his hope placed in a secure foundation that yeah, we got to have, y'all. Like if we want to endure, we got to have this kind of hope. But contrast is with his wife. His wife experienced the same thing, same loss. And look what he sees in chapter 2, verse 9. He says, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Job's wife, his, her hope was in something different than what Job's hope, hope was in. And I would say that if we want the kind of endurance, perseverance that godly wisdom will teach us, then, then what suffering will teach us is where to really put our hope, which is the only thing that really lasts, which is in God himself. So grief will teach us. It'll teach us. We'll learn from grief godly wisdom. Fear of the Lord is the root of godly wisdom. Suffering is the school in which we learn godly wisdom. One more point before we wrap up today. By the way, throughout this pandemic, I've been so proud of all the little kids who don't have children's church doing so good in here. Aren't they doing great? I feel like we should clap for all the kids and all the parents taking care of them. You kids are awesome. And we are praying for children's church to come back for you. Um... This last point is really important. It could be really important for our lives, friends. So listen, listen with us for this last moment. Godly wisdom, one of its chief marks is this. It's characterized by patience, faithfulness, and hope. Patience, faithfulness, and hope. I'm going to read for you three verses, which are three of the verses I return to most frequently in the book of Ecclesiastes. Chapter 7, verses 8 through 10 says this. Better is the end of a thing... Then it's beginning. I often go read that when I had a great idea and then tried to start it and it was super hard and discouraging. (laughs) Better is the end of a thing than it's beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not. Why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. There's so much goodness in here. We don't have time to talk about it all. But let me just draw out a a few key truths from those verses. Friends, almost anything really good that you want out of life is going to take a long time. Chauncey just talked to, to us a moment ago about the fact that grief teaches us what won't endure. But what will endure? God endures forever. Relationship with God, that can endure forever. Spiritual maturity can have eternal significance. Deep, Christ-centered relationship with other people, that lasts forever. The souls of human beings, that lasts forever. Any good works we do in the name of Christ, that has ripple effects that touch eternity. And any of those things that have real, lasting value, are gonna, they usually don't come quick and easy. They usually take a long time. If you want to grow holy and know God, that's going to be about a lifetime of faithful perseverance, trusting Jesus when it's hard. That's right. 
If you want to see people come to know Christ and grow in spiritual maturity in South Oklahoma City or at the ends of the earth, that's going to take decades of persevering faith in Christ and self-sacrificial love. If you want to invest in your family in a way that can lead to lasting good, any of it's going to take a long time. But so many people don't ever get to see that fruit, see that reward, because they get discouraged and they give up. Now, this text alerts us to a, a few things that cause us to give up. What we want is to be people of patience and perseverance who hope in God's promises. But it warns us here of a, a few things. First of all, it warns us against pride. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. See, in our pride, we demand good things now. We feel entitled. Why should I have to work so hard and wait so long? The whole time I was growing up, everybody told me I would have changed the world by now. <laughs> right? They told me my potential was limitless. <laughs> and here I am having finite potential. So we feel entitled and we get angry. And when we start getting angry, we're going to project that somewhere. Maybe we're mad at our boss or our spouse if we got one of those or our friends or God or ourselves. It's saying, don't don't get angry. Be patient. Pride and anger can get us off track. Also, naive nostalgia can get us off track. You ever trying to do something and it's hard and you start thinking, well, it wasn't so bad back then. Does any back then were you really infinitely happy? (laughs) I think so. I I just don't think any of us were. Um, we're always imagining some t- place over there or some time back then. And it says, don't ask why were the former times better than these. It's not from wisdom that you ask this. Instead of looking back and asking, why is it not like that? Maybe look ahead and ask, what does God want to do in the future? Don't let pride get you off track. Don't let anger get you off track. Don't let naive nostalgia get you off track. Instead, put your hope in God and do good. Friends, what I want to say to everybody who's tired, everybody who's discouraged, everybody who's thinking about getting up is if you stick with Jesus and don't give up, he's going to take you somewhere awesome. Put your hope in Jesus. Everything we've been talking about with regard to godly wisdom ultimately points us to Jesus Christ. Jesus is our wisdom. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is our sanctification. We started with a story from Corey Ten Boom, and, and one of the things she said in her life that was, I think, really profound is, if you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. If you look at God, you'll be at rest. If we look at the world, we're going to be distressed. Fam. There is a lot of brokenness all around us. There is a lot of noise all around us. If we look within... Looking for hope or security within, we're not going to find it. Because, like John Mark has been saying, the line between good and evil runs right in the middle of my heart. Which means that if I look inside, I'm just going to be depressed. I can't save myself or the world. But if I look at God, God is the fount of wisdom. God made the world in wisdom. If we look at God, what we see is wisdom embodied in the person of Jesus Christ who saw you in your brokenness, who saw the world in its brokenness, and who came and lived a perfectly wise life and then died a cruel death that looked like foolishness. But to those who believe, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
And if you trust in Jesus, who died and rose again for you, then God can free you to live a life of godly wisdom that will both help you to, to, to live into the blessing that godly wisdom can bring, but also help you be a blessing to other people in the world. So let's get after that. And when it doesn't work out so well the first time, let's stay with it. Let's endure. Let's be faithful. Let's persevere. Because the Holy Spirit works in you to complete what he started. So let's not give up before he does, fam. Amen. As we go to the Lord's table, let's remember that Jesus is our sufficiency and that with him we can accomplish everything that God's given us to do. Why don't you bow your heads with me and pray. Our Father, we thank you so much that you are a God of wisdom. I thank you that you are a God of justice and mercy and faithfulness. Thank you, Jesus, for not giving up when it was hard. Mm -hmm. Thank you for persevering to the end, for carrying our sin all the way to the cross. Thank you for defeating death. Mm -hmm. Thank you that with you we have no shame anymore. Guilt is taken away, that you are our righteousness. I pray for my friends who are seeking to walk in ways that demonstrate godly wisdom, even when they struggle to believe. And I pray that you would help us, Lord, in our belief and unbelief to trust you. And I pray as we go to the Lord's table today, as we go to receive the, the bread and the cup that we to remember, you'd bring to our mind your faithfulness, your provision, the sufficiency of Christ. And help us to pursue godliness and for your glory. In Jesus' name.